following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Many of you know that we've been looking at Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, for the last six months or so. And we just finished the first two sections, or the second section. The first section was on Sila, where they had collected talks that Ajahn Chah had given about integrity, about this commitment to not harming or ethical conduct, basically how we bring our mindfulness into our relationships. And when we're awake, when we're paying attention, as we're interacting with each other, with the world, then we start to recognize the different attitudes and ways of acting and reacting that are harmful and ways that are not harmful, like when we're being generous or when we're being patient. And so part of our path of practice is to bring our mindfulness into relationships and to see how we become more harmonious, things work better when we're paying attention, being mindful of our relationships. In the second section of the book, they had collected the talks that Adam Chah had given around samadhi practice. Samadhi is basically taking our mindfulness practice and looking at the mind with this intention to create a really beautiful mind. A mind that's balanced, a mind that's steady, a mind that has abandoned unwholesome, agitating qualities, not dependent on these agitating qualities, not strengthening the agitating qualities, but just the opposite, strengthening, stabilizing the wholesome qualities of mind, like calm or tranquility or energy is an important quality of mind, investigation, equanimity, stillness. So these are called the seven, these are some of the seven factors of awakening. Three energizing, three tranquilizing factors. And so the last several months we've been reading those chapters and we're about to begin tonight the last section of the book which is on panya or wisdom or deepening understanding. We're understanding the nature. So in a way this last part of our practice we're taking mindfulness, and it's not just using mindfulness to look at the mind and using mindfulness to clean up the mind and balance it and study it, but using mindfulness in a more subtle way to understand the view that's operating in our mind. At any time, there is some view operating, but it's very, very subtle. You know, these views have been operating one form or another for a long time, and so consistently that it doesn't even occur to the mind to notice the view. Because it's so much a part of who or what we think we are. You know, like if we're frustrated by life and just have kind of a negative attitude about life, just a view that life is hard or life ain't fair. And that could just be operating in the mind for some period of time. But when we're in that view, operating with that view, rarely does the mind have that wherewithal to, in a sense, be aware of that particular view. And that's why this first chapter in this third section, Ajahn Chah or whoever wrote, uh, edited the book, 
They called this, what is contemplation? And this is a, a very connected to our mindfulness practice, that when we talk about comprehension, contemplation, reflection, we're talking about mindfulness, an active part of mindfulness. So there's that recollecting, it's like this, that we normally think of as mindfulness. The mind is recollecting, it's remembering. This is how it is. It's not forgetting, it's not lost in thought, but it's remembering. Oh, it is It is like this now. This is what's being known. This experience, whatever it is of the mind, of the body, is being known. But it's more than just the recollectedness. It's also a discerning, an active part of the mind is discerning, like it, it, the mind is understanding, in a sense, the implications of this knowing. So the mind is knowing in a continuous way, oh, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. But then the mind is discerning, it's taking that raw data, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this, and it's understanding something about the nature of experience itself, the nature of the mind, the nature of experience. It's having insight. Or another way of saying what insight is, insight is the uprooting of wrong view. With insight, the mind understands that how it has been understanding, how it has been misunderstanding or interpreting experience was based on a superficial, distracted awareness. But when that awareness is more balanced, more steady, more continuous, and there's this active part. I was uh, mentioning this morning this quote from Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese monk and wonderful meditation teacher. And it goes something like, I think it's, uh, wisdom never believes, wisdom investigates. And so, Panya, wisdom, it, it has an active quality of investigating, interested in the nature. And so, I want to talk a little bit more about this place for contemplation. Because normally we think of contemplation or reflecting, we think about it in terms of thinking. And initially there is a place for thinking. It's not that thinking is inherently bad. It's just a question of whether our thoughts are the kind of thoughts that lead to more thinking or whether our thinking, our thoughts, are supporting a more immediate, direct, their simple presence, a continuous presence. And you know how it is. Some of our thoughts, like even so-called Dharma thoughts, ideas, concepts about our practice, like we talk about impermanence a lot, that everything is in flux, everything is changing. And we could start thinking about change and impermanence and those sorts of thoughts could lead to more thoughts about change. Or we could contemplate change and it could lead the mind to want to directly look at sensation, for example. What is the nature of change? Is there change here in the experience of the body, in the experience of thought? So we're not so concerned with the content of the thoughts that are coming and going, that we're really looking at the coming and going of the thoughts. And see, right thinking, you know, what we mean, skillful thinking, in a sense, is thinking that leads to 
contemplation leads to taking the mind into this direct, immediate, and continuous knowing, and then contemplating that knowing. Contemplating uh, or realizing is another way. You could say realizing what this contemplation, what this knowing says about experience. What does it reveal? What views is it challenging or uprooting? Because now this scene doesn't line up with what we've been telling ourselves. So there are two terms and uh, used in the teachings of the Buddha. One is sampajana, which sometimes gets translated as um, clear comprehension, often associated with the word mindfulness, sati. So that there's the recollectedness, and that's allowing for this clear comprehension of the way that it is. Because you know how it is, we could be mindful, but not uh, like aware, but not really comprehending, not really uprooting view, changing view, changing our understanding. It's like, are we learning or not? Have we learned anything about the breath? I mean, we can be mindful of the breath, but have we comprehended anything? Have we seen anything about the breath that we hadn't seen before? One of the reasons mindfulness of breathing can be boring is because we're not really investigating. The mind isn't really attending in a continuous way, and it doesn't have that sense of humility. You know, we're sort of watching the breath, that, and you, we don't pick this view up, that there's this view, I know this breath, been here, been this. And because of that view, like, I already know this breath, the mind isn't really showing up. I mean, we do this in our relationships all the time, in, in a more general or superficial way, where we're with a friend or with our partner, but we don't actually feel like we have to show up, because we feel we already know who that person is. And we, in a sense, we know what this interaction is all about. There are probably moments, maybe even right now, you're here at Comic-Con with that same attitude, that underlying view that, you know, there's Mark talking about this one more time. <laughs> I often wonder, you know, just having taught now for a long time and given a lot of talks about mindfulness practice, that either I'm like really blind, because it's still fascinating to me, so either it's like, either this, my mind has that sense of real humility, like I know that I don't know everything there is to know, which I think is the case most of the time, that makes it still feel relevant. You know, I feel like I'm really happy to be here, and I'm happy to be sitting with everyone, and happy to be talking about it, and hearing what other people have to say about practice, because it, to me, is so relevant. And I, I feel still so much that I'm just, like, right in that steep learning curve with the practice, so much can be, so much has, I uh, felt like I've learned so much, but it's not like I stopped learning, or that, you know, now I'm getting to the end of the learning, but it's just like it just keeps opening up, opening up, opening up. And so we need to have that attitude, that active interest that comes out of humility, otherwise we're sort of missing the point. And it's easy to miss the point because part of the practice is just sort of tamping things down. You know, we're just taking the attention away from worry, and we're giving it to the body. Be aware of the body. Taking it away from planning, just be aware of the body, or just be aware of the breath. 
Don't worry about that relationship. Just be with the breath. So in a way, you know, people, one of the benefits people get from the practice is they have a way of keeping the mind out of trouble by training it to be with something neutral, like sitting. Just the actual physical sensations of sitting or the physical sensations of breathing. And then it's just not creating problems for itself, you know, by worrying, planning, comparing, judging, fantasizing, or whatever else the mind might be doing. But that's a very limited, it's useful to be able to do that, to be able to interrupt our neurotic patterns by redirecting the attention back to, and of course it doesn't just mean sitting, we could be doing the dishes and really directing our attention to that, and in that way not be doing something more neurotic with our mind. But the whole point of the practice is first to interrupt these neurotic patterns and just have a basic sense of tranquility because we've trained the mind not to obsessively be involved in neurotic thinking patterns, worrying patterns, planning patterns. But then with that relative balance to begin to learn to connect and sustain the attention to be actually interested in the present moment continuously through the day, not just in our formal sitting, but you know, formal sitting is just a relatively easy place to get some moments where there is continuity and unbroken interest. So the interest, the active part of the practice. I mentioned the seven factors of awakening, three tranquilizing and three um, energizing factors. And mindfulness is the first or the seventh factor that keeps the energizing and the tranquilizing factors in balance. And you're, these are all familiar to us. So the active or energizing factors investigation or interest, energy, and joy or rapture. And then the tranquilizing or tranquility, stillness or concentration, and equanimity. So one of the things, you know, initially when people start their practice, they're really interested in the tranquilizing aspects of the practice. Because mostly people were overheated in life, you know, and the mind is just revved up, moving, and uh, in, in that sort of neurotic hypervigilance, not a wholesome hypervigilance, uh, there's so many triggers. And so it's, then, we, then we gravitate toward things that are not so wholesome to tamp it down. You know, we drink, we use drugs, we use entertainments to sort of give us some space from our neurotic activity. But, so initially we realize like how out of balance things are and we really want to use the practice just to get a little bit of stability, a little bit of tranquility, a little bit of stillness. But then what happens to meditators once they have a little experience is generally, and this isn't, isn't true for everybody, but generally they get pretty good at the tranquility part and you start seeing people nodding off in their practice or just falling asleep all the time or, and people can do this for decades, they sit and they can even be quite upright and look really alert, but their mind very quickly falls into a trance-like state that's pleasant and relatively wholesome, but they're not really learning anything. There's no active learning, active discerning, or insight happening. It's just a tranquil, gooey, place, you know, mental state. And... Uh, People don't necessarily notice it because it feels good. It's like a, a relatively wholesome rest from what the mind would otherwise be doing. 
So it doesn't occur to a meditator that this isn't what it's about. So once we get good at tranquility, we have to find wholesome ways now to bring the active qualities of mind alive, the wholesome active qualities of mind. But really understanding the role of interest or investigation, really knowing how to use energy in the mind. Meditation and just life generally, ultimately we need a, a very, very bright mind, like a wholesome vigilance. In fact, some of you know this, the last words of the Buddha before he died, the body gave out, was uh, he used this word apamada, like vigilance, or sometimes uh, heedfulness, or folks, be wholehearted. This practice is relevant. Don't neglect it. Give yourself completely to it. It works. It delivers what you're looking for. So there's that real encouragement to put our whole heart into the practice. But we have to do it. We can't do it because we're afraid or that we think we're going to be judged if we don't or we want to be better than other people. These would be neurotic ways to energize our practice. So we do it. We engage. We show up because we care. So out of compassion because the mind is actually interested in the truth of things. And that interest and that compassion, it energizes the mind. And that energi that energy of the mind, when it's really steady, it blossoms into rapture. Because you know how it is when we're really wholehearted, whatever it is that we're doing, it's joyful. Full engagement, giving our heart completely to some activity, you'll notice there's a, there's joy and it. it doesn't really matter what it is. You could go home and clean your bathroom tonight and you could either do it and make it a huge heavy chore, burden, where you're hating that it's dirty and you're hating everything but as you do it, or you could give yourself to it completely, so fully, so engaged that it becomes a pure joy. It's true with any activity. And once we begin to discover this, we realize well, we can transform our life just with this basic understanding that that full commitment and interest makes life joyful. It allows for joy to arise. So this is the active part of contemplation. And as Ajahn Chah says in this chapter, um, what are we contemplating? We're contemplating the nature of things. So the real turning point is when we realize that whatever our thought is about the breath, no matter how accurate our thought is about the breath, it will never be the experience of the breath. It will always be a thought about the breath. So to investigate the breath or to investigate the body or to investigate the present moment, to investigate thought, means going beyond the limitations of the concept, of the content, of the words, right? So even though we can be mindful of thought, but when we're mindful of thought, the mind isn't limited by the concept of that thought, right? It's a thought, it's just a mental phenomena being known. And that's the real point of contemplation, 
in practice. We're contemplating the nature of things, so we say Dhamma, the way it is, not the way the mind interprets or thinks that it is, but the way that it actually is free of the conceptual overlay. So we practice in a simple way. We sit in a comfortable way. We hold the body relatively still so we're not confused by the movements in the body. And then we contemplate something simple like just the sensations of sitting. Or we contemplate the breath moving in the body. Or we might contemplate hearing. But we're contemplating it, not our thoughts about hearing or breathing or the body sensations, but the actual experience, the actual you know, level of sensation. And we're contemplating it as a changing phenomenon. So it's that sustaining present moment awareness that allows the mind to actually contemplate the way that it is. So it makes sense that we need a certain amount of tranquility to do that. This is Ajahn Tanisaro's uh, translation of the Satipatthana Sutta. This is the Buddha's uh, talk on mindfulness, a very famous discourse he gave. There is a, the case where a practitioner remains focused on the body and on feelings, on the mind, on mental qualities, in and of itself, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress, which is another way of saying putting aside our thoughts about the breath, you know, what we like about it or what we don't like about it, with reference to the world. So our thoughts are always referencing our sort of vast sort of collection of views, ideas of good and bad, this whole dualistic, symbolic universe we have about who we are, what we like, what's good, what's bad. So to, to, to begin to contemplate the nature of things, we have to be willing to go beyond that. And that's what we're doing with the breath, that's what we're doing all the time. This is what Ajahn Chah says here about the difference between thinking and contemplating. And again, this is chapter 23 in the book, Food for the Heart. And so this is a question and answer session that they transcribed here. And some one of his students, a monk or a nun or a layperson, is saying, is true contemplating the same as thinking? And Ajahn Chah says, we use thinking as a tool, but the knowing that arises because of its use is above and beyond the process of thinking. It leads to our not being fooled by our thinking anymore. So this is really, I think, a useful statement. So when we're contemplating, we may use thoughts, but the thoughts aren't leading to more thoughts, as I said earlier. It's leading to a place where the mind isn't confused by the thoughts that are there. Like, for example, I could give you the thought, thoughts are just thoughts. And that for some of us, that thought, thoughts are just thoughts, can lead us to the place where the mind is less confused by the particular thoughts that are in the mind right now. Like you might even have the thought, well, that's a really interesting thought. <laughs> but in that moment, as that thought arises, you could recognize, well, that's just a thought, too. That's just a thought. I remember once I had felt like a really powerful insight in my practice was during a long retreat. 
And uh, a little bit later, the thought arose, oh, i got to tell my wife about this, my partner, Wynn, about this. And, uh, and it was so wonderful that in the next moment, the mind recognized, well, that's just a thought. And it doesn't mean that it was bad to think that, or it was right to think that, or I should tell when, or I shouldn't tell when. It was just recognizing the truth. That's just a thought. Doesn't doesn't need to be anything more than that thought, that little blip of mental energy presented itself in the mind. Oh, you should tell when about this. It's so nice not to be led around by our thoughts, but to just let them be what they are. What actually is a thought? I mean, you could just experiment now and say, spring is taking a long time to come this year, you know? And you just run that by. The one thing about our mind is it will, you know, we can ask the mind to think that thought. Spring is taking a long time to come along this year. And you just notice. It's like, what is that thought, actually? Do it again. And you can see how it just ends, right? And then what's left? I mean, you might like have another thought right after that, like, well, why did we just do that? <laughs> but <laughs> whatever the thought that it is that you notice, you can really notice that it's there. It's like a flash of lightning at night. You know, it's actually, a flash of lightning is a pretty substantial thing. But it's also pretty ephemeral. You know, it's like there, it's big, it's bold, it's... You know, we give it meaning, but then it's gone. I mean, it's like really gone. And it's a little bit like thoughts. They, they arise, they present themselves, and because it has a appearance of being something substantial, you see how that interpretation that it's substantial is what then feeds the next thought. Because as it's falling away, which it does so quickly, in that emptiness, the absence as that thought is disappearing, it confuses the mind because it felt so substantial. God, it's taking a long time for spring to come. Right? It feels so substantial or I wonder what that person thinks about me. And then we feel naked. So we, you know, then that, that attachment, that identification to meaning basically is part of the causes for the next thought to arise. That all of this can be contemplated by the steadiness, the balance, the relaxation, and the interest of the mind. Is this combination of the mind being tranquil and equanimous and still and energized and interested and joyful. The joy is important because when the mind is grumpy, it's not really interested. But when the mind has some inner joy, and some contentedness because of that joy, it's actually interested in the nature of things. We can be interested in life when we're feeling good in a way that we can't be interested in life in a pure way when we're feeling lousy. We just want to throw things around or we're desperate for a fix, but we're not interested in sort of doing basic research in the nature of the mind, the nature of experience when we're hurting. We want a fix. So Arjun Shah continues this paragraph. 
So it ends, that sentence ends by saying, him saying, it leads to our not being fooled by our thinking anymore. You recognize that all thinking is merely the movement of the mind, and also that the knowing is not born and doesn't die. What do you think all this movement called mind comes out of? What do you think all this movement called mind comes out of? What we talk about as the mind, all the activity, is just the conventional mind, or you could say the conditioned mind. It's not the real mind at all. What is real is just, uh, what is real just is. It's not arising, it's not passing away. Trying to understand these things just by talking about them though, won't work. We need to really consider impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and impersonality. That is, we need to use thinking to contemplate the nature of conventional reality. What comes out of this work is wisdom. And it's real, and if it's real wisdom, everything's completed, finished. We recognize emptiness. Even though there may still be thinking, it's empty, and you're not affected by it. The person asks, you know, well, how do we do this? Basically, he asks that question. And Ajita says, well, you have to begin with the mind you already have. So it's the contemplation of conventional reality that leads to the awakening to what we could say is the ultimate or the underlying reality. And we have to learn to be awake to both. So it's not like rejecting the neurotic mind and the body that's sort of responding, getting tight because of our neurotic thinking or worrying or planning or trying to get the body comfortable and how we tie ourselves in knots. So that's where we begin. We contemplate that. To not think about it, not get involved in the drama, but we contemplate that drama is just drama. And the sensations in the body related to the drama in the mind, that is just sensation in the body. And the drama in the mind, that's just thought coming and going. So in a way, we're deconstructing the, the usual, the conventional reality of thinking and taking things personal and seeing things in terms of good and bad. And we're not judging this conventional reality, and we're not in a hurry to get out of conventional reality. We're actually interested in the reality as it's being presented in our experience. But we're not, we're practicing not being confused, and that's where the contemplation comes in. So instead of being seduced by the thoughts or the mind's interpretation of what's happening, the Buddha gives us a few skillful means. Like when we're watching the breath or when we're aware of the judging mind, how do we not get seduced by the thoughts that are coming up in the mind? Well, we notice like he says, as Ajahn Chah just mentioned, you could notice that the thoughts are coming and going. Because otherwise, it's almost like a gravitational pull. The attention is going to want to go to the content of the thoughts. Whatever the thought is saying, the mind is, the big habit of the mind is to cling with attachment to the content of our thoughts. It just seems like the most important thing in the room, what I think now. But we can notice other aspects, like, and the, the three that are commonly used in the Buddhist teachings is notice the ephemeral or changing nature of whatever it is you're noticing. 
So instead of the content, notice the changing nature. Notice how unsatisfying the experience is. So when we look at thoughts, thoughts always leave us hungry for another thought. They're actually, it's not very satisfying to be thinking, to be planning, to be judging, to be remembering, to be comparing. On the surface, there can be some real juice in thinking, clearly. I mean, there's got to be a reason we do it so much. And so there really is a charge or some juice to our thinking. But when we have a broader, deeper perspective, so we're not kind of on the surface, but in a sense, and it's just a sense, we the mind has stepped back. As they say in the Thai Force tradition, the, the one who knows. So we're in that role, that resting in the knowing. And then we really get a sense of how unsatisfying, unsatisfactory it is to be spinning in thought. So we can contemplate the changing nature of the phenomena we're observing, the unsatisfying nature, unsatisfactory nature, and we can also contemplate the impersonal nature. Like that's the wonderful thing, even with thoughts, and it's it takes some time, but when you can really rest in the knowing, you really see that it's like somebody left a radio on. You know, that internal dialogue, that ongoing chatter. It's like, it's not very personal. And you really get the very direct sense that I'm not doing this. The thoughts are coming and going, and it's like one thing leads to another, this whole process of association. And it and it's liberating to see the impersonal nature of sensation, of thought, of sound, of all phenomena. It's very liberating. Because when the mind recognizes it more and more as nature, then it doesn't have this heavy load of being me. It's something I own and I have to fix. Instead, I just need our role, you know, as a practitioner, is just to understand the nature of it, but not to own it. Does it mean that there aren't consequences to the thoughts and to the actions and to the, you know, what's unfolding, what's being known? But we don't have to own that either. This is a very interesting thing about karma. Some of you know about karma, about intentional actions having consequences. If I act out and do really harmful things, then I make an imprint in my mind that then has consequences. And if my actions are unskillful, by definition, unskillful actions, intentional actions, lead to negative or heavy consequences. But... There's a way of understanding this that can be liberating. Whether we've set in motion really wholesome consequences and good things are coming our way, people like us because we've been kind and generous, or people don't like us and don't treat us well because we've been mean and uh, violent. But either case, the mind can learn to see it as nature. And it doesn't mean we don't, oh, now I don't have to behave because I'm not taking the consequences personally. But it means that the whole system behaves because the positive and negative response is self-correcting. And you'll see how this operates. It's like, I don't have to try to be a good person. I just have to let in the data. Like when the mind, when the heart is acting responsibly, caring, taking care of everybody, including oneself, then 
things work better. I just need to let that in. And it just becomes, it sort of corrects itself. Or when I do make a mistake and I act in a selfish way, and difficult things arise from being selfish, if I let that experience in, it corrects. It's like, you know, now and some of you are in the computer business, you know, a lot of computer systems, and more and more it's just uh, woven into our lives, it's self-correcting. Because that's, you know, it's one thing to have to program a computer to know exactly what to do in every possible situation. That's not so easy to do. But you can teach a computer or, or program a computer to learn from its mistakes. And then very quickly, it becomes very good at doing the right thing. And every day, every week, every month, it gets even better and better at it. Because every time it does something wrong, it learns and it remembers. A lot like we do. And so nature is a self-correcting mechanism. You know, the whole evolutionary process is self-correcting. You know, it's sort of, things tend to work pretty well. One of the reasons we're just in awe of nature is that, you know, and we call it beautiful, is I think we're recognizing this aspect, like how, uh, how it all has come together. It's such an intricate, interdependent, complementary way. It doesn't mean it isn't violent, but it, there's something about the wholeness of it that, that nature by definition is, in a sense, feeding off of this reflectiveness, like this mindful, like nature is sensitive, right? All aspects of nature, even plants, of course, are sensitive. And what are the plants and other creatures doing with that sensitivity? Well, it's changing the behavior, right? We're learning how to get along in the best possible way, given all of what's been set in motion. So this is a thing, this is how even insight can be impersonal. This whole path of awakening can be impersonal, because it's like this aspect of nature that has a way to... Be sensitive to receive the information that mindfulness allows and to integrate it. And this is this part of practice where we begin to intuit that I don't have to awaken. I don't have to become a good person. I just need to learn how to skillfully get out of the way and good things will come from that. So it's not like getting out of the way so I get, so I don't have to be good. But it's actually the way to become good, you know, in all the ways that we conventionally think of being good. Being kind, being generous, being clever, being intelligent. All of these come from letting nature do its work. Initially we need a lot of that willful effort because we have to break some bad patterns in the mind of worrying and planning and comparing and taking things personal. And so we break those habits by training the mind to come and be in the body. Just be aware of the body, be aware of the breath, be aware of walking, being aware of whatever we're doing, washing the dishes, and just doing one thing at a time, doing it wholeheartedly with full attention. And we start to break that habit of endlessly thinking and thinking about our thinking and thinking about our thinking about our thinking and on like that. We break that habit 
And then we're able to start to contemplate the way that it is. And that sets in motion a whole other process that we could just generally, generally call letting go. The heart just begins to intuit this possibility of letting go of ownership. More and more, little by little, gradually letting go of more and more ownership of what is happening here. Which, from a Buddhist, the Buddhist point of view would be, it's just nature happening here. And learning to trust that. And that that's actually the best way to be the best kind of person. And to be happy, too. It's like, that's what allows for, you know, the real blossoming of our lives. So I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. Uh, some of what I said tonight might have reminded you of your own experiences that seem relevant that you'd like to share with the group, or you might have questions about what's been said. Yeah, Matt. Um, I've really been trying to follow your talk closely tonight because I, I think it's fair to say until tonight I assumed that the meditation process was to just be in this tranquil state and just to focus on my breathing and not really get distracted and just sort of stay. So I think it's fair to say that I'm stuck, like you were saying. Finally, I reached this point where I can meditate and just feel peaceful and not distracted. So, what I'm trying to pay attention to is what the process looks like from moving from where I'm at to being investigative and contemplative. What are some baby steps? Mm -hmm. Well, there are different ways to do it. That for somebody like you who's having some success with a more <coughs> um, rigorous attention to the breath and uh, is I would get interested in the motivation that exists in the mind like use to contemplate the motivation that exists that is keeping the attention with the breath and as you contemplate that motivation the intention like to return to the breath the intention to sustain attention with the breath you'll start you'll you can't help it purify that motivation. So then your contemplation of the breath will get even more steady and the peace will get even deeper and more resonant. And then as, as you contemplate the motivation and the practice settles down even more, you gain more peace, then you can also contemplate the quality of the peace, the quality of the happiness you're finding in your practice. Sometimes the happiness or the peace you're getting from a sit will be relatively rough. You know, there'll be like lots of energy. I mean, it's nice energy. It's mostly pleasant energy, but it's sort of, sort of wild a little bit. And other times it's more, has more of a flavor of ease and contentedness. Sometimes more of a flavor of peace and stillness and silence. So you're contemplating the different qualities of the happiness that you're finding in your practice. And you're getting, and you're beginning to realize like a more uh, full or complete happiness, a more healing kind of happiness versus one that's not so healing, or a peace or a stillness that's more profound than you've experienced before. And again, if you get attached to any of that, you'll notice that too. So you don't need to necessarily change. You can contemplate the reality of the tranquility 
of the concentration, of the stillness, and just learn about that. And then here's the most important thing. Then when the sit ends, then use the stillness and the steadiness to begin to contemplate the dissolution of the peace that you found in your practice, right? Because the peace you've cultivated in your meditation practice is dependent on those particular conditions. You're sitting still, you've activated this intention to bring the attention to the breath and to sustain it there. But as you start to move your body and go about your life, you won't be doing, those supporting conditions won't be there. So whatever calm, whatever tranquility is going to begin to fall apart. And you can contemplate that. And the more I heighten my awareness while I'm in that state, the more I can Yeah, because you can see then what is it that causes the tranquility to fall apart, and then you can creatively see, well, how might the mind support the continuity of tranquility as I'm moving about, as I'm interacting? So that can be, that's a wonderful theme to contemplate, like how to sustain the joy of a balanced mind, or the happiness of a balanced mind, of a peaceful mind and get really interested in what gets in the way of that. And, you know, does it have to be that way? How might the mind relate to this phenomena in a way that doesn't agitate, doesn't disturb the peace of the mind? I mean, this is one of the great advantages for people who can find real stillness in their meditation practice, because you could practice this way. You can try to sustain the peace, the stillness, as you go about your day. Not in a neurotic way, just be really curious, like, how might I relate to this business meeting without losing my peace? How might I be in this traffic without losing my peace? How might I go home and see that my partner hasn't done what I wanted them to do without losing my peace? And we could just experiment. Like, one of my early teachers said, you know, just to have this basic... Um, sort of practice koan, like a question, like, do I ever have to lose peace of heart? Might it be possible to sustain a peaceful mind, peaceful heart, in all conditions? Thanks for the question, Matt. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah, see your name. An excellent question. And remember, if this was easy, we would all be liberated by now. So it's not easy exactly for the reason or one of the reasons that Janice brings up. This is an important thing that makes it very hard for the mind to free itself. It's the way the mind and body play on each other. So we have the thought, spring's taken a long time to come. And in Janice's case, some sadness came up. And this is often the case that a thought 
because of the way the mind's conditioned, the dispositions of the mind, a thought arises or we see something or even think something and then it triggers like out of the subconscious it triggers all these dispositions like to be sad because we like spring we like the warmth and it's not coming and we miss it and so that's the conditioned history right and so that thought boy spring's taking a long time at coming triggers all of that desire and disappointment and there it is as a visceral feeling emotional feeling now like she says the thought goes away very quickly but the body's much slower than the mind. So the same thing, if somebody, something made you angry, the thoughts associated with that anger could go away, but the charge in the body stays. And see, then we notice the charge in the body without a lot of wisdom or tranquility, and so we assume we're still angry. So we then think the thought again, right? To match the feeling we have. We think the thought again. And then that thought triggers the feeling, the visceral feeling. And then we get that, feedback mechanism, where the mind and body are putting in motion what we call samsara, these cycles of suffering, these endless cycles of suffering, because where does that end? You know, we have a charge in the body, like one of the things that happens in practice sometimes is we just uncover a generic fear or anxiety, and it's not about anything that's going on in our life. It's just like a residue of having been anxious or fearful for a long time, and there it is. And if we're not careful, if we're not mindful, we'll start interpreting our life as being dangerous. Because we have this feeling, we trust that feeling as being some kind of truth. So we want consistency more than anything. So we want our thoughts about what's going on now to match the feeling we have. So we'll start talking to ourselves or interpreting our experience to match the anxiety that we feel. And then, of course, those thoughts will trigger more of that feeling and we'll be in that feedback loop again. So the key is, as soon as we see the thought disappear, then the next moment to be mindful of the charge or the feeling telling in the body. And to relax with that and to trust that that also comes and goes. Just to have an open mind. Will this come and go? If not fed, if the mind doesn't get identified with it, but is just present with it, will the sadness do what nature does, which is nature arises, presents itself, and then falls away. And then we, we stay with it, stay with that charge. And there's only one way to stay with that charge. We have to be intimate. We have to be undefended. If we're in a defensive stance with the emotion, then we're feeding it, because that involves a thought. It's dangerous. It's bad. I don't like it. We may not see those thoughts, but they're there if there's a defensive stance. So we really need to relax with it as best we can. I mean, that's the practice. Thanks for bringing that up. That's really important. Yeah. Maybe a little louder if you can. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's a really good question. If you didn't hear, what's your name? Paula. What Paula was saying about, uh, in Buddhism we might call that substitution. And one of the talks the Buddha gave, he talks about that as one of the strategies. He used the uh, image of just like you would take a nice new wooden peg, and let's say you built something with pegs, and one of the pegs is rotten, and you take the new peg and you pound it in and push out the old peg, the rotten peg, in the same way you can insert a thought, or in your case, you know, a different perspective on the sadness and the, the story of the snow still being here, right? You could just have a different um, story, like, it's beautiful, as opposed to, oh, still, still winter out. So you're substituting a different view. And so part of Dharma practice, I mean, it's Dharma practice exists, like I said earlier, there are strategies that are very gross in a way, or very relative, you know, like, you know, just, well, that's not a helpful story, let's use this story, let's let's have the mind think about this instead of thinking about that, because there's a lot of room for just those very simple strategies, but we don't want to, that's not the best strategy, but when the more subtle strategies don't work, which is to see that that thought is just a thought, and that the feeling is just a feeling, and to be present with them without attachment, without identification. That's a little bit more subtle because it doesn't involve somebody doing something. But when that doesn't work, when we can't just be aware of it, then we can use that other strategy. But see, the side effect of that other strategy is you feel you have to ride in and rescue the mind, right? By bringing in that other point of view. And that conditions, it reinforces a sense of danger, like, I've got to be there. It's sort of like, I need this parent inside of me who's going to take care of me if I start to fall into sadness. And so, if we can, mindfulness is better because it doesn't involve a lot of self-doing. But if that doesn't work, if the mind, if the mindfulness isn't strong enough in that moment, then we want another handful of strategies that we can call on that can help bring the mind into balance, including the one that you mentioned which is to bring, basically you're bringing in a friendly attitude. We call it metta, loving kindness, you know, to sort of appreciate the beauty that's there. That's like substituting what was unwholesome, like a complaining, blaming mind state, to one that's appreciative. And that's, you know, obviously a much more wholesome, beautiful state of mind to be involved with. We have to leave it here. It's 8.30, so just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath together. Appreciating these wise, practical teachings passed down from the Buddha, all the women, all the men who have done their practice before us. They also had busy lives, difficult lives, did the best they could, shared what they learned, generation by generation. So now it's our turn to hear the teachings and to do the best we can to cultivate this continuity of mindfulness. So the seeds for wisdom and compassion be a cause for peace, 
peace in our hearts and peace in the world. So may this be so. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.